Red-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Lawrence Lessig, the Roy L. Furman Professor of Law and Leadership at Harvard Law School. He co-founded Creative Commons in 2001 and is the author of numerous books, including Republic Lost, version 2.0, which he and I talked about on the podcast a few years ago, and I'll make sure there's a link to that in the show notes. Now, today we're going to be talking about his recent book, America Compromised. Lawrence Lessig, welcome to the show. Great to be back. Thank you for having me. You know, this is a book about essentially corruption and I think that's maybe a term that we it would be helpful if we define because there's sort of a common sense definition or a common definition, I guess. But you have a very specific definition, and I think it would be good if we started with that. So so what is corruption? Well, the ordinary way I think people think about corruption is the way in which people are talking about the president right now in relation to the Ukraine scandal as um, uh, being corrupt. So that sense is engaging in bribery, which means giving something of public uh, value in exchange for something that will benefit you privately. So if it's true that the president, for example, um, said that he would hold up aid to Ukraine unless the Ukraine gave him dirt on his political opponent, that would be a classic example of bribery that would be inappropriate and constitutionally explicitly prescribed. My view is that kind of corruption, though important and though significant in the history of America and other countries around the world, is not actually the most important corruption to try to remedy, because current history notwithstanding, um, it's relatively rare in America today. I think our Congress is among the cleanest in American history with respect to that kind of corruption. Instead, the kind of corruption that I think we need to worry about is institutions that allow themselves to be influenced or driven or dependent upon influences, which undermine their capacity to do what they're there to do. So this is not about individuals violating the rules. It's about institutions developing improper dependencies. So the best example of that kind of corruption, I think, is Congress. So Congress was intended to be an institution that would be, quote, dependent on the people alone. So dependent on the people alone, the dependency they were primarily thinking about was elections. But in addition to the dependence on elections, right now we have a Congress that is dependent on raising money to get reelected. And they don't raise money from all of us. They raise money from the tiny fraction of the 1% who can give them the large contributions they need to get elected. So that's a dependence not on the people alone, it's a dependence on a subset of the people who's actually not representative of the people at all. And so in this sense, Congress has become institutionally corrupted, even if none of the members of Congress engage in traditional examples of bribery. And I think that kind of corruption is ultimately more destructive of institutions of democracy, because in a certain sense, it can be right out in the open, in plain sight type of corruption, yet it leads many people to think the institution is not actually responsive or reflective of their values. And so basically, there's sort of a typology here where you can have a, a decent institution, but bad people in it. And you're saying that 
That's not really what we have. We really have more of maybe bad institutions with mostly good people. Is that is that right? Yes, exactly right. Yeah. And and the problem, the real problem with that is that if you don't, you know, we, it's easy to motivate people to respond to bad people. You know, if you if you yeah. have a good person and a bad person, that that's the ordinary way in which outrage uh, inspires. When you have good people in a bad institution, it's a really hard thing to motivate people to try to do something about it. But I think that's exactly what we have to find a way to do if we're going to ever assure that our democracy can function again. Yeah. In a way, it it feels to me like what this comes down to is building in the right institutional incentives. And by right, I mean figuring out or making sure that the incentives in an institution or to the actors are aligned with the goals or the purposes for which that institution is designed. Is that more or less what you're saying, at least in part? It's exactly right. And so, you know, this book um, uh, has really two different uh, uh, parts. One is focused on the way in which the institution of our government has become unrepresentative and money and politics is one example of it. But the other part is the way in which we ourselves don't represent us um, uh, because of the way we are rendered in the world of modern social media and, and the world of cable media. Mm-hmm. And one way to understand that that problem and the, the corruption involved in that problem is if you think about institutions of journalism um, or institutions of news, um, we want those institutions to be feeding us information that's true because it's true and important. Right? That That's our conception of the proper role or institution of of uh, journalism, at least with respect to uh, issues of public import. But when you see the way advertising skews or corrupts the incentive of these platforms, that's another example of the uh, institution making itself dependent on the wrong kind of incentive. Right. So, you know, you see these, um, you know, er- all of these online sites, including the New York Times, um, tweaking their headlines to make their headlines yeah. so that they attract more clicks, clickbait journalism. Um, you know, that's unre- that's completely unrelated to the ultimate objective of journalism, which is to tell the truth and to help people understand the important issues. Yet this platform drives to that end when right. all of the support in this platform comes from something like advertising. Well, in that sense, then we're we're looking at the sort of the incentive, the the goal of journalism may be the truth, but the goal of I guess what you could say the news business is to get engagement and clicks, and so those two goals of are definitely in conflict here. Yes, exactly right. Now, there's a there's another distinction I think is important is that an institution can be bad without being corrupt. Like for instance, under your sort of the way you're talking about this, the mafia would not really be a corrupt institution, though certainly it's a bad institution. Is that right? Yes, exactly right. So um, uh, the mafia um, is obviously doing bad. Um, If it conceives of itself as uh, focused on, you know, uh, the corrupt objective of, um, you know, criminal behavior, then when it does criminal things, it's not being corrupt relative to its own, um, uh, relative to its own objective of what its purpose is. Um, But, uh, but I think that that institution 
um, you know, obviously is one we should con- condemn, but for the purposes of corruption that I'm thinking about in this book, um, the conception is corruption relative to what you identify the purpose of the institution to be. Right. And that institutional purpose is um, uh, obviously criminal. So, you know, if it's pursuing its criminal ends consistent with its criminal purposes, it's not in the sense that I'm describing corrupt, even though it certainly is bad and, yeah. and we should condemn and criminalize it. Now, now, when you talk about Congress, you mentioned that they're corrupt in the the institution is corrupt in the sense that the dependence was supposed to be, especially in the House, on the people alone, and that dependence has shifted to one of on the the top, not even one percent of the funders. And I, I'm I'm perfectly happy to accept that. I believe that's true. But when we look at, is there any sort of solid evidence in terms of outcomes or actions of Congress that there is this dependence on funders over the general public? I think the best data about this, um, and it's really quite striking, is a study by um, Mark McGillens and Ben Page, um, uh, which is uh, the largest empirical study of actual decisions of our government, maybe in the history of political science. And relating those decisions to the attitudes of economic elites, who are the presumptive funders of campaigns, organized interest groups, and the average voter. And what they find with economic elites is what you would expect. The more who support who support an idea, the more likely it was that that idea was adopted. So going from 0% supporting something and a 0% chance, uh, 0% that it was adopted to 100% supporting something and something like a 36% uh, probability that it was adopted. Um, and the same pattern exists for organized interest groups. The more organized interest groups support something, the more likely it is it was adopted. Um, and the less that supported it, the less likely it was adopted. But when they look at the average voter um, and they relate you know, the decisions of our, our actual Congress to what the average voter um, uh, thinks, what they find is that there's no relation between the percentage of uh, support that an average voter gives to some idea and the actual chance that that uh, idea was adopted. Um, It's uh, basically a flat line. Um, So that 0% supporting an idea um, produced the same probability of that idea being adopted as if um, 90, uh, as if 100% support that idea. And when they described it in English, uh, you know, when they put the the findings um, uh, that they had in English, it's really quite striking. So what they say is, well, the preferences of the eco- of economic elites and the stands of organized interest groups are controlled for. The preferences of the average American appear to have only a minuscule, near zero, statistically non-significant impact on public policy. So, in a democracy, the attitudes of the average American have no statistically significant impact on public policy. And um, of all of the ways at which we can kind of get a sense of how this dependence is corrupting our democracy, this seems to be the most uh, direct and clearest evidence of precisely this destructive effect. And it's not surprising because um, if you imagine, just psychologically, imagine the effect of sitting there spending 30 to 70% of your time raising money from a tiny, tiny fraction of the one percent, it's not. Uh, it, it, it would be surprising if it didn't have an effect on you. Yeah. It would be surprising if the consequence of that 
was not to fundamentally affect how you viewed the world. Because um, we know humans have built into their DNA the, uh, the reciprocal obligations that you know, have made it possible for us to cooperate with each other. And if a politician really were serious when she said to you, you know, I took their money, but I wasn't at all affected by what they wanted, we'd, we'd have to say that was a psychopath because you, yeah. you just can't live uh, a normal human life and not be affected by people you are so dependent on. And, and so when we build a system where they are so dependent on, you know, the interest of this tiny fraction of the 1%, we're building a system that is corrupt relative to what Madison said we'd have, which is a Congress dependent on the people alone. Right. That reminds me, and I think this, I, I might be quoting you to you, but correct me. Um, I, I seem to recall in an earlier work, you said something along the lines of campaign finance reform isn't the most, just the most important issue. It's the only issue in the sense that everything is downstream of that. If you don't deal with that corruption of the, did, did I get you right there? Is that that's you that I'm so quoting? You, so I, I quoted that statement by Chen Ugar, the guy who runs the Young Turk Network, and okay. he gave a speech at, um, I think it, uh, I can't remember what conference he gave a speech at, but I, but I start Republic Loss by quoting his book, I mean, quoting the statement. It's not that this is one issue, it's the only issue. Now, I would modify that a bit. I would say, it's not that this is the most important issue, it's just the first issue. Right. Um, if you don't address this issue, then you're not going to be able to address any of the other important issues. Uh, sensibly at all. So, you know, we have this election going on right now, and you have Democratic candidates out there promising the moon, um, talking about all the extraordinary things they're going to accomplish, whether it's free college or raise the minimum wage or um, single-payer health care or infrastructure spending, whatever, whatever their issue is. Um, they're trying to inspire people um, with the idea that if they're elected, that issue will you know, be adopted in the way that they're describing. But, you know, my view is all of this is fantasy politics unless they make clear how the first thing they're going to do is to address this corrupting dependence inside of our government. Because if they don't, then everything else they're talking about is just not credible. You know, when Obama tried to get Obamacare passed, and as a candidate, he had promised two really important things. Number one, he had promised there would be a public option so that there was always a way to create competition with the private insurance companies. And number two, he promised that um, uh, uh, the government would negotiate prices for pharmaceutical drugs, yeah. so that unlike the um, Prescription Drug Act, which George Bush passed, um, where the government is not allowed to negotiate prices with the pharmaceutical companies, Obama said that's outrageous, and he would absolutely guarantee that there would be negotiation to keep the prices of drugs low. When they tried to pass Obamacare, the drug companies and the insurance companies basically came to Obama's team and they said, if you do this, if you adopt a public option and you give the government the power to negotiate prices, we're going to spend you know, $100 million yeah. to defeat Democrats. And so they realized they needed to strike a deal. And the deal they struck was they were not going to have a public option. They were not going to negotiate drug prices. But that deal was necessary if they were going to get the uh, Obamacare passed. And and this is the point at which you realize you can have all the great ideas in the world. You can promise and get elected committed to enacting those ideas. But so long as the money has the ability to threaten retaliation the way it does right now, 
any idea that threatens the money will not succeed in this Congress. And it seems to me that there really aren't too many presidential candidates talking about that. I mean, there was a little bit, maybe Pete Buttigieg, I heard early on, but for the most part, that's that's a non-issue, it seems to me, on the campaign trail. Well, you know, you're right. um, But I think but I think there might be more to the story. You're right in the sense that it's not what the news reports. It's not the thing that you hear them saying over and over again. It's not the first thing that they talk about in a debate. It's not the thing that has ever once been asked about in the debate. But we've actually been working hard at Equal Citizens to reach out to every single candidate and to get them to commit. We, we call it the POTUS One Pledge. You know, HR One was the bill that mm-hmm. Nancy Pelosi passed that had fundamental reform. Um, that she passed as the first bill because she believed it had to be enacted first. We've been getting candidates to make the POTUS One Pledge. And the POTUS One Pledge is, what is the fundamental reform that you promise you will enact uh, as the first thing that you do as president? And 10 candidates, including um, three of the top uh, five candidates, have committed to this POTUS One Pledge. They've committed to passing fundamental reform first. And, you know, that includes um, Elizabeth Warren. Um, we think it includes Bernie. He's not been as clear about the moving at first. It includes Buttigieg. Um, and it includes um, uh, seven others uh, among the Democrats. Um, but the challenge is that if they're not willing to talk about this first, if they're not willing to make this the thing that every candidate, everybody listening to them hears over and over and over again, then when they're elected and they try to move it first, they're not going to have the political yeah. support, the public support to make it actually happen. Yeah. So um, I, I'm both, you know, in one sense, really optimistic because we've never seen a, an election where you've had this level of commitment to fundamental reform. But I'm pessimistic because of exactly what you've said. Most people don't hear it. It's only, you know, we reform geeks who notice that that is in fact what they've done. Yeah. Now, on the right, I think one response to this might be, even if you know they accept these findings, would be essentially that, well, these people who are organized, who have the money, these are our best and brightest. And so they're in a better position to make smart, wise public policy choices. So it's not really a problem that the general public's views aren't being considered so much because, hey, the best people are being considered. I was just wondering what, what you what you thought about that. I guess it's essentially saying, yes, the institution's corrupt, but that's okay in this case, so, sort of. Well, you know, I think there's a very important confusion at the core of that claim, um, because it's certainly true that, you know, some of the people with wealth are among the most talented people in our society. And, you know, so, you know, obviously somebody like Elon Musk is incredibly wealthy and um, he's been incredibly successful in mobilizing extraordinary amount of resources to do things which people would have thought was impossible. So the idea 20 years ago that you'd have a private company launching the most important um, space exploration enterprise privately um, would have been incomprehensible or you know, a, a new company starting that will um, revolutionize electric cars. I mean, that was just not conceivable. Um, but, you know, he's obviously done that. So he's incredibly talented in his ability to mobilize and, and, and engage in revolutionary action in, like that. But when you ask what these people do, not Elon Musk in particular, but rich people do, when they get close to the government, it's not like they're trying to get the government to do the thing that's in the interest of America. Right. 
they're deploying their incredible entrepreneurial and uh, organizational skill to get the government to do what's in the interest of them or their own companies. So they are incredibly skilled at getting the government to, for example, subsidize the oil industry. You know, it's astonishing, but the oil industry, one of the most profitable industries in America, has extraordinary level of government subsidies that make it possible for them to make even more money. Or they organize to get the government to ban the ability to negotiate about drug prices. So we pay, our government pays some of the highest prices for drugs because by law, they're not allowed to negotiate for cheaper prices, even though they're buying in bulk in a way that um, uh, is uh, the biggest purchases that are made at all. Or you get the government, you know, you organize and you get the government um, to, for example, um, change the taxing system. So your kind of company benefits in a way that other type of companies don't. And the point is, in each of these cases, what they're, or, what they're good at is getting the government to behave in a way that benefits them, not behave in a way that benefits America. So I have no doubt that they're really good at corrupting the government and the policies of the government. What I'm asking is, do we have any reason to believe that they're good at getting the government to do the right thing that's good for America? And, and you know, there's no evidence that, that, that that's what's in fact come from this. In fact, to the contrary, what they've been, you know, I mean, the best, the best story of this was, um, you know, when, they were pass- when Congress was passing the $1.6 trillion tax cut, which benefited primarily the richest corporations and, Amer- and Americans. Um, there was a member of Congress from uh, New York who stood on the floor of the House and said, I've been told by my funders that if I don't get this passed, I should never give them a call again. Wow. So there was an explicit acknowledgement but the reason he's doing what he's doing is because he's been told by his funders to do it. Now, again, the funders were really effective at getting Congress to pass a $1.6 trillion tax cut to benefit them. But um, the evidence has been pretty clear that that tax cut did not help America anywhere as much as it cost America. And, and, that, and that reality, I think, is, is, uh, you know, is exactly what we should be worried about. Well, what's interesting to me about this issue as well is that it's bipartisan in a couple of ways. In in one sense, you can find people on the libertarian right and the progressive left who, you know, will inveigh against crony capitalism. But yet when it comes time to vote, that it it just never happens. Yes. And because uh, crony capitalism is what greases the wheels of American politics. Yeah. Um, and if it weren't for crony capitalism, it would be much harder for these people to raise the money they need to get elected. Um, so I think that, you know, and, and this is a point I make in the book, but, that, you know, many libertarians will argue the solution to this corruption problem is just to shrink the size of government. But of course, you're not going to shrink the size of government so long as big government pays the politicians. And yeah. of course it does, because the bigger the government is, the more incentive people have to resist this big government um, uh, or resist the regulations of this big government. Well, the way you do that is to give money to politicians <laughs> so that they don't regulate you in the way that you want to be, you don't want to be yeah. regulated. So um, this chicken and the egg is only solved by just stopping the corruption first. And if you stop the corruption first, then we can start talking about the other issues that you know, uh, you might uh, believe we ought to pursue. And, and you know, it, it's, it's even a problem if you're a member of Congress who wants to fight back against this, the, the institution 
pushes back against you. I was talking to Thomas Massey a few weeks ago, and he said, you know, yeah, I basically have to buy my way on the committees. And if I refuse to do that, I don't get committee assignments if I don't raise enough money for the party. And so right. you're basically are frozen out if you don't play a part in this game. Right, exactly. And so there's no choice yeah. about participating. It's just the terms at which you're going to participate. But so when we look at potential solutions, I mean, it seems to me a big impediment is maybe not the First Amendment per se, but the way in which a majority on the Supreme Court has interpreted that. And so I guess I, I wonder, I get frustrated because absent uh, a change on the court, I don't know what we can do that wouldn't run afoul of the First Amendment as at least the current court sees it. Well, I think that there's actually uh, no uh, important change that would require changing the First Amendment right now. Um, You know, so so the particular changes I want to see in the way we fund campaigns would be something like giving everybody democracy vouchers that they can use to help fund campaigns. Well, the Supreme Court has said again and again, there's no problem with public funding of congressional campaigns. Like Congress is free to do that. Um, and so I think in the context of this kind of reform, this would not be blocked by the Supreme Court. What the Supreme Court's going to block is efforts to silence people in the political debate. So suppressing speech or blocking the ability of people to engage in political speech. And while I think that they've gone too far in the context of super PACs, or at least lower courts have gone too far in the context of super PACs, I actually think that our democracy could survive perfectly well if our members of Congress were not dependent on these rich people to fund their campaigns, but the rich people were free to you know, publish whatever ads they wanted, saying one thing, one thing or the other. And the evidence for this is, you know, people all uh, obsess about Citizens United, which in 2010, um, uh, you know, declared that corporations and labor unions were free to spend whatever money they wanted in the political uh, market. But they don't focus on the fact that actually in 1976, um, you know, uh, 35 years before, uh, in the case of Buckley versus Vallejo, the Supreme Court had also said that rich people were free to spend whatever they wanted, so long as independent of a political campaign. And what we discovered after Buckley versus Vallejo is actually not many rich people wanted to spend that money. Um, You know, they didn't actually like being out there in the foreground. trying to change people's votes in, uh, in, in elections. Some people did, people like T. Boone's Pickens or the Soroses, they, they liked spending money like that, but most people didn't. And so it turned out that it didn't really significantly affect the way campaigns happened. And the same thing turned out to be true around uh, corporations. Many people feared, and I was one of these uh, chicken littles when it first came out, that, um, that they would spend an enormous amount of money trying to change the way campaigns happened. Um, but it turned out they learned very quickly the high cost of free speech. So Target um, started supporting an anti-gay candidate for governor in Minnesota and then found themselves being picketed all across the country by people who were outraged they would be supporting a candidate who was so openly against um, equal rights for people based on sexual orientation. So they quickly withdrew and then they realized it doesn't help us as a business to be in the business of um, supporting political candidates on one side or the other. So most of the money that people expected would come from corporations just didn't appear. Instead, that money had been laundered into these things called super PACs, which the Supreme Court has never itself upheld, 
which lower courts have upheld, and I think ultimately the Supreme Court is is going to um, is going to reach a different conclusion about them. Now, you mentioned a, a voucher idea, and it's uh, popular with I think a number of a number of folks. Uh, one concern, I guess, that I've heard and that, that I maybe have to an extent is it could lead to sort of an arms race situation where if, if everyone gets a fifty dollar vouchers, well, the corporations just spend more to meet that, and you know where does it stop? Is that a is that a legitimate or a serious concern? Do you think, or would it not play out that way? Your- well, the first thing is that corporations are not allowed to give money to political candidates. Right. They're only allowed right. to spend money independently, or they've got money in uh, PACs, corporate PACs they can give. And those PAC contributions are limited. They're like um, um, a maximum amount they can give. So um, so their actual ability to engage in the arms race for contributions is restricted. Um, but, I, but I think that, more importantly, if there were this ecology of vouchers out there, Candidates would be liberated from obsessively worrying about what the richest or the most powerful I see. Um, uh, would be caring about because they don't depend on them to raise the money. I mean, they'd be interested to hear what the Soros is or, you know, the Koch brother or at least the remaining Koch brother might think about a particular idea of theirs or not. I mean, that might be interesting and important. And of course, I think that members of Congress should listen, especially to people who have produced businesses that would be affected by their regulations. That's the appropriate role of lobbyists to inform members about the consequences of legislation. But they wouldn't depend on them in a way that creates the enormous influence that they have right now. They, they're free to, they would be free to say, well, that's very interesting, but no thanks, I'm not going to do that. And if they said that, they're not going to face a consequence in the ability to raise money to get reelected because the money would be coming from ordinary people and ordinary people are really hard to organize um, one way or the other on these issues that really are only affecting the, the very rich. So, so I think that this would create a layer of independence that would give them the opportunity to do what they should be doing, which is um, you know, uh, uh, legislating in the interest of the public in general. Right. So it wouldn't be a case where you don't think where dark money would just flood into, I mean, uh, supporting campaigns indirectly who are kind of aligned with their interests. That might happen maybe in a few uh, a few instances, but you don't think it would be widespread enough to kind of defeat the purpose of, of a voucher system then? If the numbers are right, if the size of the voucher is big enough, right. then it wouldn't be effective. Um, you know, I don't, we can't say as a matter of principle that that it would never uh, be corrupted. Sure. Um, or, you know, if the vouchers are really small, then the vouchers won't matter. So then it would be corrupted. I just think that we can see that the thing, the one thing that's nice about corporations is that most of them um, are just in it for the money. Right. <laughs> uh, and that sounds like a bad thing, but that's actually a good thing. If you can create the incentives so that rather than wasting their money on Washington trying to get better tax code uh, changes, they would, you know, they'd actually make more money if they just went out and innovated and tried to make the world a better place for their consumers. They'll go out and make the world a better place for their consumers. That's where the money is. They're just going to go to where the money is. So if you raise the cost of corrupting Congress, oh, okay. um, they'll they'll go and try to make money other ways, and that's that's a good thing. Um, and uh, you know, it's uh, it's actually better, easier to regulate that than particular individuals. You know, if you're a person who's motivated to support Israel, or if you're a person who's motivated to support uh, women's right to choose. Um, 
you're going to fight regardless of what the incentives are. You're going to do as much as you can regardless because you have a very consistent principle that you're trying to advance. Um, but if you're in it because this is a good way to make more money, then, yeah. you know, you'll just figure out where to make money and that's where you'll go. Uh, that's a great point. Now, you also look at corruption in finance. Now, as I as I read it, it's really not so much the corruption of the industry. I don't want to compare the finance industry to the mafia here, but but I mean, the finance industry is designed to generate returns for well, themselves and investors and so forth. But it seems to me that especially in the context of the financial crisis, uh, it's really more a corruption of some of the regulatory bodies that are supposed to watch over the industry, and I'm especially thinking kind of in terms of rating agencies. Is that is that right? Yes. Um, you know, because they, they turn out to be the best locus of influence. So the rating agencies themselves had adopted uh, um, they adopted a strategy um, to get rich. Uh, you know, they, instead of basically selling access to their ratings, decided to um, um, uh, sell their rate, sell, uh, uh, the, I mean, they would, you would have to pay to get rated by right. the agencies. So, you know, a company has a certain bond that they want rated and they go to the rating agencies and they say, how much will it cost to get this rated? And the agency says, well, you know, you pay us this amount of money and we'll rate it. Um, and then there's a negotiation. Well, what's the rating going to be? <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, if you don't give the right rating, they'll just go to a different rating agency. Right. So there's this incentive for them to bend over backwards to make the rating agency happy. And, um, uh, uh, and the problem with that, of course, is that um, that undermines the credibility or the integrity of the rating. Um, and that was a decision about how they were going to do their job as a rating agency. Um, rather than uh, focused on how do they assure the public's trust as a rating agency. And that, um, that's really the critical uh, difference that we have to keep in focus. I think, though, a lot of people would say that, well, you know, even if the answer potentially to some of the problems with the finance industry is better, tighter regulation, there's a potential problem in that, in that the finance can go anywhere, right? I mean, you can set up a financial capital, you know, London, Hong Kong, you name it. And if we're too tightly regulatory in the United States, well, that's just going to flow everywhere else. And so it will be a net loss. Uh, is that, do you think that's a, a concern, a legitimate concern that people have? Um, on the margin, it certainly is true that it's a problem. Um, but on, in the main, no, I don't think you, that kind of excuse um, um, should be uh, uh, sufficient to overcome the desire or the need to have effective regulation. Um, you know, this race to the bottom, it, it might be something that a country like New Zealand needs to worry about, um, but the United States has enormous market power and it should, you know, use that for good. And I think in the context of, re of regulation, that was a really important um opportunity to do good. Yeah. And maybe there's a larger role for international financial regulations like the the various Basel Accords and, and that sort of thing. Yes, exactly right.
Now, you also talk about the media a lot. And one of the things I I was really fascinated by this chapter because I read a lot about the media. And uh, one of your arguments was something I'd never really thought about before. And it's always cool to come across that. But uh, at one point, you write, uh, the progressive sought to tie government more tightly to everyone. And that just meant that everyone needed to understand more fully the issues of government. And you link this into kind of modern media and issues with it. And so uh, you're going to do a lot better job of explaining it than I will. So can you talk a little bit about what this meant for media? Well, you know, when the progressives looked at the problem of American government, the end of the 19th century, early part of the 20th century, what they saw was the corruption of government by special interests through political bosses. So political bosses were the enemy um, because they couldn't be trusted to do what was in the public's interest. Um, And instead of political bosses, they wanted to find another way to drive the direction of politics. And that other way was the people. So when um, uh, they thought about how we're going to drive politics with the people, the answer was things like the primaries um, or referenda or judges who would be elected by the people. Um, But the people became more important uh, uh, to the project of governance than they, in some sense, had been before. Because before, you know, the people basically elected the party bosses and the party bosses, um, um, or they elected the people the party bosses had selected, and those people um, were really what mattered to governance. Now, once you begin to say that the people matter, like their judgment really matters, then you got to worry about whether the people actually know anything. Um, um, and and so uh, this became a really important concern, especially as um, propaganda uh, grew and people like Walter Lippmann um, uh, uh, were you know, deeply concerned about the public's capacity to understand public interest, uh, public uh, issues in the face of propaganda. And this drove to a very strong uh, ethic of journalism. So the answer here is to have um, journalism, which people can trust, and that provides the facts in a way that the people can do something with it. And that's really the birth of our conception of like objective journalism um, as it begins to develop a practice of trying to just report the facts and give the people the information they need to make the judgments that the people need to make. That was the dream of the progressive era. And, you know, we can, we can argue about whether it was successful, but that's what they hoped they would accomplish. But, and and of course this happened in a very different media environment, right? And, and we've seen in the last, I guess, really since the, the birth of cable TV, uh, a, a much more competitive environment. And normally more competition is a good thing. But this, in this case, it seems to have been kind of a media race to the bottom with, you know, drama, sensationalism, that sort of thing. And, and, and so I got to wonder sometimes when I'm feeling less optimistic, if Technology has just driven us in a direction where the media is simply incapable, working in a capitalist society uh, and staying in business, of informing the people in such a way that they can make wise decisions. That that sounds pretty pretty skeptical, but I'm wondering if you share my skepticism here. Well, I actually so this is a um, a podcast about a book that I published, um, um, America Compromised. Um, Actually, just yesterday, a second book uh, of mine came out that sort of builds on some of these ideas in a more extensive way. Um, And that book's called They Don't Represent Us. And in the second part of the book, I 
focus on the way in which we, the people, don't represent us because of the way we get rendered by the media. Um, and we get rendered by the media in that way because of the business model of advertising. So both cable and the Internet um, is tied uh, in its DNA to advertising as the model for funding uh, its work. And the problem is that when you've got technology like um, targeted uh, data uh, uh, tied with advertising, um, it becomes really um, irresistible to um, target and bend your stories in a way that you know is going to help um, in advertising. And so, you know, you could ask, which pays more, creating neutral, fact-based journalism or um, tribe uh, rallying yeah. and uh, crafting journalism? And the answer to that question is obvious, because we see practically every media organization following that, which is how to build a loyal, strong base committed to your particular tribal identity um, as a way to leverage that base into more loyal purchases um, um, of advertising. So, um, so I think that you're right. It's a real concern of mine whether in this environment of media driven by advertising, we can craft democratic speech that gives us any reason to believe in what we the people have to say. Yeah. That's a really hard problem, and I'm not sure... We have a clear answer to it. And, and, you know, it's not like there isn't that uh, sort of fact-based good journalism out there. But, you know, like, for instance, you can, if you want that, uh, National Journal is a great place for that. But it's a subscription. It's something like $3,000 a year. And, and I, I, I say I use that example because my concern is in part that what ends up happening is the only people that are going to be able to afford the truly the best of journalism are going to be economically shut out of it because that's the model they have to adopt. It's true. And, you know, I think this is a really hard problem because, you know, if you listen to Mark Zuckerberg talk about it, he sees it as a question of, you know, deep social justice that uh, media, social media be uh, kept free because then everybody can get access to it. And if it costs, you know, $10 a month or $20 a month, the way like AOL used to cost, then a huge proportion of the public won't be able to get access to it. And I think that's a fair concern. But the point is to keep on the table the other side of the problem, too. If you have free but layer on top an architecture of uh, advertising, and that advertising leads you constantly to invade as much privacy as you possibly can and use the data you've stolen to target ads in a way that riles people up because that makes them better targets for the advertisers, then, you know, what you're getting on one side, you're losing on the other. It doesn't, it doesn't help anybody to have a democracy right. where we are all so ignorant about the other side. We don't even understand what they're talking about. We just know that they're wrong and we want to scream at them and be self-righteous in our judgment of how, uh, condemning them. Um, but that's the world that we have increasingly created. Um, you know, so Donald Trump tweeted a quote from uh, um, some Southern pastor where the pastor said that if Donald Trump is impeached, it would be a civil war-like reaction. Right. And of course, I think it was wrong for Trump to tweet that because the idea that he would be threatening violence as a, uh, as a reason not to pursue the uh, quite legitimate charges that are against him is outrageous. But there is a kernel of truth to it 
because you know the Civil War is a period where we lived in these two separate bubbles, um, and those bubbles were crafted by laws which, for example, forbid Northerners to send um, uh, uh, abolition material to the South. And the North didn't understand the South, and the South didn't understand the North. And the consequence of not understanding was it was so likely that they would trip into some war. Now, I don't think we're going to have a war. I don't think we're going to go and neighbors going to take machetes to, to neighbors. Right. But I do think we've got a real challenge for a democracy when um, uh, we don't even have uh, the same story understood by everyone, regardless of their reaction. Just, they don't even understand the same story. And and that that raises the question whether you know democracy can survive in such a such yeah. a world. Now, another institution that you talk about in the book is is the law, and part of your argument here is uh, well the what what you call chicken shit prosecutors, which basically means prosecutors who are unwilling to take on those really tough cases. And could you could you talk a little bit about how that emerged and why, for instance, like in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, we didn't see any individual prosecutions? What what's the institutional incentive driving that? Well, um, uh, so uh, chicken shit um, uh, is stolen from the title of uh, a book that really inspired me um, uh, to write that chapter. You know, I, th- this book was um, actually uh, written in, uh, as a follow-on to a series of lectures mm-hmm. that I uh, had given at uh, Chicago. And those lectures included every chapter except the chapter on, um, uh, on the law. And as I was writing up the um, I was writing up the um, book. Um, I felt like I was cheating by not including a chapter on the law. And just at that point, I was reading this book by Jesse Eisinger um, called The Chicken Shit Club. <laughs> and The Chicken Shit Club, that title comes from a, a speech which um, uh, Comey gave to um, Justice Department uh, attorneys in the Justice Department um, when he when he came to um, uh, to, to New York to take over the department. And he, and he, and he basically said, um, um, I want everybody here who has never lost a case to raise your hand. And, you know, a bunch of really eager lawyers raised their hands. And then he said, um, okay, you guys are members of the chicken chick club, because if you've, if you've never lost a case, you're not bringing enough cases or you're not bringing the right kinds of cases because we ought to be pushing the law. Um, uh, not, you know, pushing cases that we know are going to get us our wins. Um, um, but in Jesse's book, um, beyond that really great title, which is hard to repeat on public <laughs> television, yeah. but um, um, uh, in that book, he tells a story of a kind of incentive, which is a perfect example of institutional corruption. So what, he's, what he describes in that book is, um, you know, increasingly lawyers who are government lawyers feel the difference between the life they're able to lead as a government lawyer, given the salary of a government lawyer, and the life that their friends lead, who they went to law school with, who go off and become, you know, lawyers at big firms and become partners at big firms. Um, And he talks about how at the beginning of, um, you know, the early part of the period he's looking at, the difference was not so great. So, you know, you're not going to be rich being a government attorney, but you're going to be 
able to have a comfortable middle-class life and your kids are going to go to good schools and, you know, life will be great. So you can do, you can do good and also do well enough. Um, but now the difference is so huge and the cost of um, middle-class life is so huge that so many of these people feel really for good reasons. Like I'm just trying to help my kids because they can't afford to be government attorneys for their whole life. They have yeah. to move on and move out to the private sector. And so what he describes is in the process of moving out to the private sector, um, they need to make themselves attractive to the private sector. And so how do they do that? Well, one way for prosecutors to make themselves attractive is to prosecute in a way that the um, lawyers on the other side really appreciate. So rather than <laughs> prosecuting um, these corporations who violate the law by bringing in the CEO and threatening jail time for the CEO and prosecuting all the way through to a conviction by a jury and um, and actually forcing them to either be found guilty or admit guilt, what he describes is the incentive to settle cases up front with no um, declaration of uh, guilt and paying a relatively small fine that doesn't force any real change in the corporations at all. And that's kind of win-win because the Justice Department gets its, wit, gets its victory. The lawyer um, signals to the other side, the Justice Department lawyer signals to the other side that, you know, he can do him a favor and that businesses um, win because they don't actually have to confess or pay the consequence of them breaking the law. But that set of incentives obviously makes it harder and harder for white-collar criminals to right. be prosecuted by the Justice Department, which is why, you know, as he points out, um, after the uh, savings and loan crisis, we had thousands of people go to jail because of their participation in that crisis. After the 2008 financial crisis, we had nobody in any real decision position going to jail because um, there was no prosecutions of people in positions because it wasn't in anybody's interest anymore to be prosecuting like that because if they did prosecute like that, it would make it harder for them to do what they wanted to do afterwards. I think that is a really... Uh, important uh, problem uh, to um, to recognize and to think about how to fix. So one possible solution that would come to mind, I think, almost immediately is, well, just, you know, raise raise their pay. I, I did a little digging and there are what around 5,300 assistant U.S. attorneys. They make on average around 134 grand a year. So even if we doubled that, it would be $710 million per year more in spending. But I would imagine that if this logic follows, that we'd more than make up for that in successful prosecutions, right? Yes, absolutely. But it's hard to justify it because, you know, we live in a world where, um, you know, they're paid money, which ordinary people would think is a lot of money. Yeah. Um, and it is a lot of money. You know, you get paid $150,000 to be a lawyer. That's more than they get paid. But if they got paid that amount, uh, most people would say that's, you know, twice or two, uh, almost three times what the average person gets paid. So that's a lot of money. But the relevant thing is not to think about them relative to the average person. It's them relative to the average classmate that they went to law school with. Yeah. So if they're getting paid $150,000, but they're, um, you know, everybody else in their law school class is getting paid 
500000 a million dollars because they've all gone to work for these big firms, then that creates real pressures on them. You know, if they're, you know, if a woman uh, goes, uh, becomes a Justice Department lawyer and is being paid, you know, $120,000, um, but uh, could go work for a private firm and get paid $600,000, then she thinks to herself, well, you know, yeah. I could afford better uh, schools for my kids, or we could afford to live in the suburbs and have a backyard, or we could afford, um, you know, a vacation that would actually give us, get us a chance to have out. Yeah, so the point is, th- she's not doing that because she wants to drive a Ferrari. She's right. doing that because <laughs> she wants to make the life for her family better. And she could. And so, you know, when we say to people, you should not make your life for your family better. You should instead <laughs> yeah. stay focused on your job as a prosecutor. I think we're asking too much. And so I think we need to pay people what they need, what we need to pay them in order to get them to do the job we want them to do. And I would even go so far as say the same thing is true about Congress. You know, people are so down on Congress and Congress people, and they think it's so terrible um, that, uh, that they get what they get. Um, but the reality is they don't get much. You know, a member of Congress gets paid less than a graduate of my law school in her first year on Wall Street. Um, And so, you know, when we ask ask who are the people that are actually willing to do that, um, it's first of all not necessarily the kind of people you'd want to be doing that. But secondly, you can see why they have an incentive to kind of bend the system to make it so that they can ultimately benefit from their time in Congress. So, you know, spend six years in Congress, then go be a lobbyist and get paid 10 times what you were paid in Congress. Um, And and that increasingly is the pattern. And I think the only way to stop that is just pay Congress people what is appropriate to pay the people who are making our laws. You know, if the first year lawyers are being paid $180,000, the people making the laws should be paid many times that amount. Yeah. Um, and they ought to be given the kind of um, confidence or assurance so that they, um, you know, they don't need to think about how to bend the system to benefit themselves personally. And so I would be strongly in favor of paying members of Congress much more, giving them, almost buying them off so that they don't continue to stay in Congress forever, like get a bonus if you leave after 10 years <laughs> as opposed to stay after 10 years. I mean, all sorts of incentives to get them to be independent, do their job for the right reason, and then move on so that other people can, can get in and do the right thing too. And of course, politically, that's super hard because what a lot of people might not know is that there actually is a law that gives Congress an automatic pay raise every year, and they have to specifically vote to turn that down, which they've done for the last 10 years. Now, it looked this year like there was going to be a deal, but uh, the consensus collapsed. And so right now, I believe members of Congress adjusted for inflation are making something like 15 percent less than they were a decade ago, which is... And still, it wasn't a lot a decade ago. And the place that they work, the cost of living has gone up much yeah. faster than the cost of living generally. So, you know, you have all of these Congress people who literally sleep in their office. Yeah. You know, they, they go take a shower at the gym, the congressional gym, but they sleep on a couch in their office because they can't afford an apartment because the salary that they have and the support for it is not great enough to support, you know, having a house back in their district and also um, an apartment in Washington. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous that we would imagine paying people under the amount that they would have to violate the health rules to sleep in their office just in order to be able to do their job. And and so as, as unpopular as it is, I'm kind of free to be able to say unpopular things because I'm not running for Congress and, and, um, and I've got tenure. But here's my claim. 
we ought to pay members of Congress much, much more. The idea that they need to sleep in their office is ridiculous. We won't get the kind of people who we need to lead this country if, if that's the reality they face. And so I think we ought to be honest about that. It's the corruption of Congress that comes from underpaying members. Absolutely. So in the end, do you feel that American political institutions in general are becoming more corrupt? And if so, do you feel like this trend that we're, we have some way, realistic way to reverse it? I guess in the end, I'm asking you if you're an optimist or not. I think that um, certainly the institution of Congress um, is becoming more corrupt in the sense that I mean corrupt. Yeah. It's becoming more dependent on um, funding by special interests, not just direct funding, but super PACs as well. So I think things are getting worse um, from the dimension that I care about. At the same time that I think there's fewer people than ever who engage in actual quid pro quo bribery. I just don't think that happens. Maybe at the president's level, we'll talk about that differently. But in the ordinary members of Congress, I don't think who they are. I think they're decent people that go to Washington for the right reason. But when they get to Washington, they find themselves inside of a system that forces them to bend in the direction of money. And that is that's a corruption of them. So um, I think the only way to fight that is to rally a public to recognize that this is the broken institution in our democracy. Congress is the failed branch of our democracy. And if we don't find a way to rally to fix that, then our democracy is not going to be a democracy. It's only a democracy, a representative democracy, because of Congress. And if that institution disappears in any uh, effective functioning, then what we're left with is an increasingly autocratic uh, president. And that's who we have. Well, and I got to say, one thing that I've really appreciated about your work throughout the years is unlike a lot of academics, you've really, it, it seems to me, tried to make an effort to take your theory and try to find a way to make it a reality. And not only that, but you've been willing to very publicly adjust some of your views when you were faced with new evidence. And I think both of those things are so important and we need a lot more of that. I, I really appreciate you for doing that. And I greatly appreciate you having taken the time to talk with me today. Great. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you like what you heard. Listener support is what keeps the show going and we truly appreciate it. When you become a monthly sustaining supporter of the show on Patreon, you don't just get our gratitude. You get a supporters exclusive bonus episode each and every week. Also supporters at various levels can get additional bonuses like Politics Guys gear, and access to a special supporters-only Facebook group. To learn more about all this stuff, go to patreon.com slash politicsguys, or you can visit our website, politicsguys.com slash support. Subscribing to the show also really helps, as does sharing episodes. Word of mouth is, of course, the best advertising, and we really would appreciate it if you tell folks about the show. Leaving reviews and ratings on whatever podcast app you use is also greatly appreciated. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do that at mail at politicsguys.com. There's also our Facebook page where you can message us and we're reposting things throughout the week. It's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. Finally, we're on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Benji Fishman, and Andra Maskell. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.